But the other interesting thing is it was a, a very large reduction even from the previous period, 2011 to 2016. 31% of churches had experienced growth and only 50% had a decline in their mm-hmm. attendance. What's your reaction? There's <laughs> a lot of statistics there. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think COVID's been a factor. I think a lot of people obviously weren't going to church for a couple of years mm. and it's taken a few people a bit time to come back. But my understanding of the stats is that we've bounced back to pre-COVID overall attendances mm. in church. Are you feeling and, that? And like it's that actually is. maybe gone up a little bit. Oh, overall. really? Hello everyone, you're back with us on the Shock Absorber and it's great to have you along with us. I am joined by just you today. Hello. Hello Joel. How are you? I'm very well, thank we you. We are uh, in a different location at Miranda Congregational we Church are, yes. with a, a brick background this time. Yes, very brick. <laughs> yes. Uh, welcome. <laughs> I've already said that. <laughs> Let's get straight into it. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the times today the hunt for Red October because you watched yes. it last night. Yes, I watched it last <laughs> night. Yes. <laughs> What happened was I was watching YouTube movie reviews and there was a movie review on The Hunt for Red October and I haven't seen it for ages and I thought, I like that movie, I'm going to watch it. So Mm -hmm. I did and it's a great movie. And if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favour. The Hunt for Red October is starring... Sean Connery. Yes. But I was just... It's set in... Yeah, I was going to ask you, it's set in the late Cold War, but what's it about? He's He's a Soviet naval captain. Yes. And he's, what's he trying to do? Right. So the Soviets in the movie have created this new ballistic submarine that can run silently. So the Americans uh-huh. are freaking out. So it can't be picked up on no, sonar no. and things like that. It has a new way of doing the engine mm-hmm. so it can do this thing. Anyway, so the idea is that the Russians have this thing that's basically a stealth submarine before that was a word. And the Americans are like, oh, no, this is bad. <laughs> But what happens, it's okay, because Sean Connery decides he's wanting... He, he's the Soviet captain of this sub, but he's decided that he's going to defect okay. to the Americans. That's the premise of the movie. So then the whole Russian Navy chase him and the whole American Navy are looking for him. And the whole thing is like, is he really going to defect? Is he going to attack America? Are the Russians going to get him? Are the Americans going to get him? Are they the can't Americans going to get him. the? They can, but they can't find him. Right. And then they work out how to find him. And it's all very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. You seemed very taken. You very seemed to very much enjoy it last night. Oh, I love Sean Connery, and he does different kinds of things. Like in Indiana Jones, he plays this bumbling father mm. character, but in this movie, he's just pure Sean Connery, which is kind of James Bond with a Russian uniform on. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting way you're mixing a lot of uh, espionage, oh, <laughs> espionage so he's such uh, a good actor I really like Sean Connery is you reckon it's his best I don't know your, I don't know what his best would know. be I like think. Highlander a lot that's a great movie oh, I don't think I've seen that sorry that's you've seen awesome. so more, many awesome. more movies than me that's an awesome movie yeah he's a good actor he's a very good I, I mean everyone loves his uh, his accent Oh yeah, I do. That's the funniest thing about the movie. So he's on this Russian sub. He doesn't even try and put on a Russian accent. <laughs> so he's got this broad Scottish accent. He's like, That's "Dive," like, you know, "Dive." Yeah, no, dive. "Dive." I don't know how you say it in Scottish. I, the only thing I remember is that <laughs> way back in the day in Solis, uh, uh, one of our friends Chris put together a video, mm. and he decided to do a fake ad 
of celebrities singing so- songs that we like <laughs> Christian songs that we yeah, sung. At, I remember it. <laughs> that we sung at sung at church, and and he didn't. I think it's called we. I don't know. I think we had a song called One Way. Yeah, and it's like that's one way. It's <laughs> a short comedy. So ridiculous. So and then did one with Arnie and something else. Arnold Schwarzenegger and I can't yeah. remember who else, but yeah, that's that's my biggest memory of um, <laughs> church and and Sean Connery. Yeah. Well the movie's like thirty five years ago or something. It's like nineteen ninety, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, so crazy long yeah. time ago. Yeah, so long like time ago. Thirty three years ago. Thirty three, something like crazy. that. Crazy. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it was written by Tom Clancy though, because that's Tom, yeah, Tom that's Clancy so novel. Cool. Isn't so it? well written. Yeah. Tom, Tom Clancy's a gun, and I didn't realize it has Alec Baldwin in it. Mm. He's he a plays a good part too. He's a young Alec Baldwin. He's a bit of a joke character sometimes, Mister Alec is. Baldwin. Yeah, I don't know. Have you, yeah, have you ever know. seen him in um, The Departed? No. Uh, so The Departed is a Scorsese oh yeah yeah movie. that's the one based on the Hong Kong one. No no that's uh, no the um, no, I got that wrong. No, it's the the Irish gangsters in uh, uh, is it in Boston? Yeah, I think that's it's got based a, on a Hong Kong oh, triad movie. Is it called? Oh, I have to find out. Ian showed me In, the movie. Oh yeah, Infernal Affairs. If, yeah, so it's based on a Hong Kong triad movie called Infernal Affairs. I didn't realise that. Yes, so it's yes. absolute rip off. So you've got Academy Awards, and no one talks about Infernal Affairs. But if you look at Infernal Affairs, that is another great movie. I keep hearing that from from the guys at Riot. They said they love that movie. It's awesome. Right. I was, Ian showed it to me. It yes. was amazing. What a legend. Anyway, let's move on. Yes. Uh, I've got some statistics to throw at you. Two, two uh, surveys that I found where I thought yes. were interesting and see yes. what your reaction is. Yes. So the first is from the National Church Life Survey Research Centre, and it's from their church census, which they run, or the, the period that they, they are reporting on for here is 2017 to 2021. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that they mentioned is, and this is just from the executive summary, so we haven't delved into the whole uh, uh, report, but this is what it actually says. So it estimates that from 2016 to 2021, it is estimated that 18% of local Protestant churches experienced a net growth of at least 10% in their weekly attendances, but then it says, while 69% have declined. So that means 10% of their churches, no, 18% of their churches have increased 10%. Yes. While... 69% 69% of churches have declined right. in their attendances, which is quite a staggering statistic. Yes. They have said that they think that the large reduction over that period is um, partly responsible because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which I would probably agree with that. Um, but the other interesting thing is it was it's a very large reduction even from the previous period, 2011 to 2016. 31% of churches had experienced growth and only 50% had a decline in their mm-hmm. attendance. What's your reaction? There's <laughs> a lot of statistics there. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think COVID's been a factor. I think a lot of people obviously weren't going to church for a couple of years, mm. and it's taken a few people a bit time to come back. But my understanding of the stats is that we've bounced back to pre-COVID overall attendances mm. in church. Are you feeling and, that? And like it's that actually is- maybe gone up a little bit. Oh Overall, really? Is yeah. that what you've experienced? We have experienced a soul revival. Well, Solis is one of the churches that has experienced growth through both those periods of time that you suggested. Mm. So we started in twenty eleven. Yeah, end of twenty eleven, right? Yeah, yeah, end of twenty eleven, and it's now twenty twenty three. So we started with thirty people, and now we have grown to five hundred and sixty people. So we've had some growth. Mm. And that's interesting. The next 
like batch of uh, information, they said that churches of a larger size were more likely to grow as well. So if you had a larger congregation, you were more likely to experience attendance growth. So mm. apparently 20%, 28% of churches that had 100 or more people attending experienced growth. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Mm. I'd agree with that. Okay, uh, the other well, thing is... Of course is, I agree that it's actually statistics, so there you go. Oh, you can't disagree with it, is that what you're saying? Don't think so. Well, you can't disagree with the statistics anyway. <laughs> you might disagree with the reasons. Mm. We can keep uh, delving. Yes, please, <laughs> let's, let, let's keep delving. Uh, the other interesting thing was no denomination was immune from being impacted by the pandemic and right. decreasing uh, attendances. But I wanted to bring up the other thing that they re- reported was about church planning. So... It's markedly lower in that 2017 to 2021 period. It's markedly lower in terms of church planting, which you can kind of understand. What's markedly lower? The decline? Ch- actual church planting. Oh, church planting has, yes. has got less. Yes, I yes. would agree with that too. Which, and they said it appears that the rates of church planting has gradually decreased prior to this as well. Mm-hmm. But also they think that the COVID-19 was the major contributing factor to that because uh, there was a little or no successful church planting in 2020 and 2021. We've been a church planning church. We always started and wanted to start as a church planning church. We started as one particular church plan that mm. we wanted to grow our gatherings. How do you think, in a general sense, and like even our partnership with Miranda Congregational Church is an interesting, we're not church planning, we're only partnering with them. But do you think there is a desire from pastors and uh even congregants to actually want to plant church, plant new churches, especially after COVID maybe? I think it was pretty trendy there for a little while. I think mm. the whole Acts 29 Mars Hill phenomena oh, yep. was driving a lot of the fashionability around church planning. Um, before that came to prominence, I think earlier on the emerging church and the emergent church in the beginning of the century was uh, also kind of trendy there for a little while. Uh, there was lots of books written about church planning and there was lots of uh, people talking about a search for different ways of doing church. I think mm. that was really trendy. But I think when the rubber hits the road, I think church planning is really, really difficult and many churches fail when they're planted. And so I think when it actually comes down to it, the attraction for a lot of Gen Ys for church planning, I think, was around we can plant a church and kind of be in charge of the church we don't have to wait a while before we're actually given the opportunity to run a church oh, yeah. and we can start from scratch and do something a bit more creative and a bit more our generation. But then the downside of that is the risk of not growing, the risk of not having enough money, the risk of not having a place to meet. So the actual realities of church planning are difficult. So when we started our church, we were called a, ch- a base jump church by some people because we basically just jumped off a cliff and if the parachute didn't open, we were gone because we didn't have a net under us. So what that means is we didn't have any money, so there was no external financial support. We didn't have any place to meet. There was no building given to us to meet in and we only have a small group of people. And you mentioned earlier that the bigger churches seem to be growing. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening more and more is Christians are looking for a bigger critical mass in their churches. I think they're attracted to bigger churches rather than smaller churches. And so if they've got, I think transience is a big, big thing now that Mm. people are very transient and they move around from church to church. Uh, So I think that when people move around, they look for something that suits them, their family. And usually 
they're people looking for a church that's big enough to have good music, good preaching, have a decent community, have kids ministry, have a youth ministry and um, have good pastoral care, good discipleship Bible studies. So you kind of need to have a church over 100 people to have some of those things in place. Mm. Churches that are smaller tend not to be a place where people can be ministered to. They're more of a place where people minister at. So I think churches that are smaller also have a bit of a struggle reaching out to new people who aren't Christians uh, as well if they're a, a sedentary church. In other words, if they've got a set culture and they don't have a distinctive about them and they're not on a missional footing, then there's a likelihood that they're not really going to be doing super amount of missional activity. So unless they are, and it's just also it could be a really hard slog, um, it can be really difficult in a multicultural country for a mainly Anglo-Celtic traditional church to make inroads into communities that are different as well. So, yeah, doing church in in this century is difficult and so church planning is even more difficult. So I think that's why there's less church planning. There's also, you know, it's not easy to, there's sometimes a bit of opposition to church plants. People sometimes don't like the idea of a new church starting in their area. The existing churches sometimes may express concern, which is completely fair enough as well. So that can also be a bit of a deterrent from some mm. people as well. So, But having said that, there are church planning organisations like Reach Australia and Geneva Bush and Acts 29 that are. Oh, FIEC, uh, the Anglican Church in Sydney is still planting churches. So there's still church planting initiatives going ahead. And I think that we just need to think through how do we overcome some of those obstacles for people to help them get into church planning. I think the best thing I've seen so far is the hub and spoke model because there's basically two ideas. You can either have a mother-daughter church where a church plants a new church and uh, the new church has a completely separate identity and has a separate life or you can plan a church that is kind of a spoke church and the the sending church is a hub that looks and that's what we've been experimenting with, mm-hmm. and that's resulted in us being able to plant churches during COVID. So we planted our most recent gathering at Ride in 2020, and we planted that group with like six people, mm-hmm. and so that's grown to about 25 people now. But some of the church planting models would would argue that's not a church yet until it gets over 50. So we're working with some micro church. Uh, ideas and trying to work out how to actually equip and empower small churches because of the statistics that small churches are harder to grow. I don't think there's as much literature and support and help for small churches as I'd like to see. So, yeah, we're trying to have play our part in that conversation to see if we can bring something to the table. Yeah, that's really interesting. What do you think? I mean, you mentioned Acts 29 and the Mars Hill and even um, uh, Mark Driscoll Mm. kind of thing that kind of came around in the 2000s, didn't it? Mm. Why do you think church planning is such a thing now? Because I, I, I wouldn't suggest, and I could be wrong, but I wouldn't suggest it's a, it was a thing maybe, say, in the 1950s, for example. Why do you think it mm. now has become a, th- a thing that we need to do? Is well, it because we need yeah. to newer churches? Well, actually, it's it's actually happened for a long time. We just haven't talked about it for okay. a long time. And, so, and talked about it in that way. Yeah, so when, when you and I grew up, most of the churches had been planted 70 years ago and they hadn't, yeah. you know, I think the latest one in... Sutherland Shire, where we live in Sydney South, was planted. The last, the last Anglican church in Sutherland Shire before us was Menai Anglican, and that was planted in the eighties, oh, right. something like that. Yeah, it was a big expansion in that area. Yeah, because that new area opened up, and mm. they just planted a church there, and that's gone really well. That's a great church. 
uh, we planted and a lot of people were like, oh, why are you planting when there's already so many churches in Sutherland Shire? But I think what people have forgotten is that demographics are changing and the um, the number of people living in an area has grown as well. So the density of the areas is, is growing. Uh, now, with within... Um, you know the electorate, uh, electoral commission. When when a an area grows beyond uh, what it what it was, they redistribute it and make two electorates. Well, we haven't been doing that in churches. We've sort of just been keeping our churches ministering to the same kind of area. But if you go back, like the Anglican Church in Sydney started in one church and then it planted another one and then they oh, planted yeah. another one and then planted it. So the reason we have all the churches in Sydney is because of church planting in the 1800s and early 1900s. Mm. And most of the churches in the Sutherland Shire were planted in the 1920s, most of them, around that time and up to the 40s. So, yeah, we've just lived through a time where there's no church planting. But in the meantime... The Australia, well, our city has grown to four million people, and so there's huge growth in Sydney. Sydney, Melbourne, I think, has overtaken Sydney, something like that. Mm. So there's need for more churches. It's just that we we don't have a paradigm because in the Anglican Church we have parish boundaries where we say, okay, Engadine is a church; it's going to look after those people. But now that one parish in Engadine is looking after twenty seven thousand people, presumably. Right. So how does that church reach twenty five twenty seven thousand people? I don't know. Big ask. So that's why Engadine asked us if we'd plant in Yarrawarra, which is the next suburb along. And yeah, I think we do need to grow existing churches and and plant new ones. But yeah, the statistics are not looking great over the last fifty years. There's been a decline in attendances over that period of time. That's been quite remarkable, and the amount of people who adhere to being Christians has also been in decline mm. through that period of time. Well, maybe, and maybe it could it definitely it seems to be a demographic thing, as you're saying. And then you talked about it, it was very appealing to, especially to people from Gen Y church planning. Mm. Uh, what you said that they might want to do something a bit differently. Why do you think that was? Was it like they, they just wanted to start something from scratch? Or we've talked about young people not being listened to, for example. Yeah, my theory on that is if you go back to the 1960s, there was a huge generational change with the baby boomers mm. saying that they wanted to. Uh, live very differently to their parents who fought in the Second World War, that kind of genera- the war generation. Yep. Um, in the 60s, a lot of things changed. So there was a lot of technical inno- innovation in the 60s, like the pill, that the contraceptive pill created a situation where there was now new values towards sex and sexuality. There was um, rock and roll. There was whole heap of different ideas about anti-war civil rights movements all those sorts of things so you get a situation in the 60s that uh, the baby boomer generation were looking for something different and in the early 1970s there was two things happen one was the jesus movement which the new movie jesus revolution is about where whole heap of young baby boomers even experimented with new kinds of churches they actually started communes like in sydney there was a commune called the house of the gentle bunyip which is pretty fun the house of the purple door that apparently literally had a purple door and Mm. they were communes that people could go to on friday nights and listen to christian music with guitars and drums and at a time where all churches just had organs basically and sang hymns there was this emerging kind of desire for contemporary music and then so the Jesus movement came and went pretty quick with the hippie movement. But the other thing that happened in the early 70s was the church growth movement in America. 
And that was driven by a guy called Donald McGavern, and he had an idea called the homogeneous unit principle. Now, that idea was we have looked at American, well, he was looking at American culture, but it was true for Western cultures, that young people don't want to hang out with older people and do the same things as they used to anymore. So let's keep a traditional service going in church and let's also start a youth service in the evening. And then let's also start a contemporary family service in the morning so that families can have their own cultural service as well. And so that idea spread right over the world and right through Sydney. And so there was a massive change in how people did church in the 1970s compared to how people had been doing church for like 400 years. So there's this new style where people are looking for a youth service or a family service mm. or a traditional service. Now, I think when that generation set that up, they just assumed our generation would be stoked with it and we'd keep it going forever. But in the 90s, there was a lot of us who were like pretty tired of that model for right. a few reasons. One of it, it was very event-based, so it was very much about a professional service and come along for an hour to a really good event with good music and good preaching and then go home. Well, a lot of us in Gen X were like, we're looking for community. And so Soul Revival was born in the 90s because we were looking to spend more time together. We were looking for deeper relationships like mission that was was something that we did together as well. So Gen Xs found, many Gen Xs were finding that old baby boomer homogeneous unit principle a bit frustrating because it didn't relate to their context but they didn't have the institutional power to do anything about it uh. so the experiments were all taking place in youth ministry or for some gen x's i didn't but some gen x's left the church and started their own churches so that was called the emerging church and i think the mars hill mob were kind of wrapped up in that to start off with but that was almost like a parallel kind of universe to the mainline churches that were continuing to go in a certain direction and even the new charismatic churches i mean one of the biggest churches that was a homogeneous unit principal church was Willow Creek over in America, led by Bill Hybels. And that was massive. That was a mega church of you know, tens of thousands of people going to that. But it started to decline in the 90s. Interestingly, the Willow Creek Federation came to Australia to push the idea of this homogeneous unit principle in the early 90s. And I got invited to go along to this youth ministry part of that uh, conference and... Bo Boshes was the youth minister of Willow Creek and he was talking to us about even in the early 90s, Gen Xers were starting to get tired of the Willow Creek phenomena that for them, their parents just loved the whole big razzmatazz of the whole thing, but they thought it was too big and too impersonal. And so a lot of young people were leaving Willow Creek in Chicago and going to other kind of churches. So you get Mark Driscoll come along in a warehouse and got tooth and nail artists, there was an old music label called tooth and nail and they had um oh, i can't think of any of the names of the bands now they had like, they had a, at some point they had a, a musical stuff, and things like that yeah that, time, oh, it was 90 pound wolves i think was one of the bands oh, i yeah. think mxpx was part of it right. i'm not sure but that kind of music and anyway those churches became very very popular and instead of this kind of consumerism that was being promoted by willow creek come to a church that's right for you uh, Mark Driscoll went on this shtick that was more kind of like, I'm going to tell you how it is and I'm going to say what's really real about the world. It was more cynical. And Gen Xers love cynicism. So mm. it came out of the whole time of grunge music and stuff like that. But that sort of led to a bit of a multiplication of church planning around the world where Gen Xers were sort of like, yeah, well, we're a bit tired of the regular sort of 
come to church, sing a few songs, hear a sermon and go home. They opened church, uh, in, a, in Sydney there was a church called, um, was it called Coffee Church or Cafe, Cafe, Cafe church, church, I think it was called. Yeah, Cafe Church in Newtown, I think. I don't know, some of our viewers might have even gone to it. I've had a few friends that went to it. But um, that was an example of a Gen X church that was a church plant. And that wasn't really designed necessarily to be this massive church. It was just like a expression of desire for more community. But at the same time, you've got, um, particularly in Melbourne, and Mark Sayers was part of the movement early on. He'll talk about how he got a bit disillusioned with it. But the whole emerging church was like, well, maybe the culture has changed so much since post-Christendom that we need a post-modern church that's a bit more eclectic. And it's a bit different. Uh, yeah, Hirsch was writing books on that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there was a bit of a change with the Gen Xs. And the, the reason I was saying that the Gen Ys picked up on it was I think particularly Acts 29 and Mark Driscoll and some others had become a lot more sophisticated in their approach by the time they launched Acts 29. And then Gen Ys came along at a time, where you know, the Gen Y population, which started being born in about 1981, is probably your generation yep. and it's the biggest generation Australia's ever had. So even bigger than the baby boomer generation. So I think the march of the Gen Ys through church planting system was this huge influx of young people who were really keen to have a bit of a go and really keen to do their own thing. And it, it became a bit different to cafe church. It became more hipster church, you know, hipster churches yeah. to young adults were really popular and stuff, but hard to sustain. So I think... A lot of church plants that start off coming across like the cool way to go to church can actually become really difficult, even if they've got all these great missional things like missional community groups. I mean, um, you know, Total Church was a book that came out talking about all this kind of stuff. Crowded House in England was a really popular example of how things can go there. But some of the leaders fell. People like Mark Driscoll fell uh, for different reasons. And as a result, some of the harsh light of day exposed that church planning is actually really hard sometimes yeah. and it's hard to keep going long term. So mm. I think that's my summation of why mm. church planning's found it difficult. In a time where where the number of people going to church has declined, the number of people saying they're religious has declined and uh, a time where the church has got less influence over people than it used to. It's interesting you, you mentioned that like church planning is really difficult and I mean... I mean, it's a small part of that. I mean, I was a part of the, the original team that we planted the church. But um, you've been a big part of it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I, it's interesting that you say that Gen Y or millennials were really keen to do their own mm. thing. But then you also mentioned like a number of that kind of leaders of that generation almost, you know, had to step down from their positions as well. And you also have said previously that when you and Matt planted the church, it was actually better that you were maybe a little bit older than that generation. Do you think that helped? Yeah, I think for me it was good. I mean, I stayed in youth ministry right through the 90s and <laughs> 2000s. Loved it. It was fantastic. And I think for me the creativity of being able to do some experiments in youth ministry, our church gave us that freedom to do that and that was ample for us. We really enjoyed it. And then when the church decided it wanted to to go in a different direction, uh, we moved on and planted a church when we never really intended to. So that was part of it. But the other thing was um, being a bit older, I was 40-something when I started. 
I think it was good being in my 40s because I'm just speaking for myself personally. I don't want mm. to make any dispersions on others. But when, if I just planted a church in my 30s, I don't think I would have had the uh, the the wherewithal to go through with it in the long term because there's a lot of there's a lot of hard stuff you got to go through in church planting. It's not a lot of money. Like the first two years of our church plant. Uh, I think I was on five grand a year for the first two years and then the second two years I was on 40 grand a year. So it was a difficult time financially. But also uh, there was a lot of conflict and criticism and things like that swelling around us as we started. A lot of people didn't really know what we were doing or trying to do. So it wasn't like people were trying to help us to achieve what we were trying to do. It was almost like people were asking us to justify why we were doing it often. But there were people who were supporting and helpful. Uh, but there was also a lot of people who needed to share with us that they didn't think we were doing the right thing and that this was somehow a bad thing to do, uh, planning church. So, yeah, church planning is really difficult. And I think I, I didn't really... I didn't really... Um, care too much about our reputation or my reputation or anything i think it was more this is good for the kingdom and so it's worth doing Mm. so and i think i had a bit of a thicker skin by the time i got into my 40s yeah your life experience kind of helps you roll with the punches so i think that's part of it as well but it was still really hard at times um conflict within church plants can be hard too Mm. because you're hoping that people who come along aren't haven't been at church before and you do get a lot of people who are either de-churched or unchurched, but you also get a lot of people who come from other churches too who have left their church for a reason and bring that reason with them sometimes. And so conflict can arise around silly little things like, you know, why are we singing three songs at the beginning of the service instead of six? Or, you know, um, this church doesn't have X, Y or Z. You know, you try and explain to people that the church is only 10 years old and we don't have... X, Y, Z, but we also don't have B, T, H and and all some of the other things. So um, I think, yeah, I think it's interesting to keep thinking that with church planning, it's not about the glamour and it's not about this is going to be a f- necessarily an easier way to do church. It actually could be harder. Mm, which is kind of sold that way to a certain degree. Yeah, sometimes I think some people thought it was a cooler, funner way of doing church. But it's just another way of doing church, really. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. You also mentioned, just when we were talking about Gen Y, that the transience. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of got the sense from you saying that people will choose the church that works for them. Do you think that also means, and we kind of talked about this last week too a little bit, and yeah. also what you were saying about because people have different discipleship styles or have experienced different discipleship styles. But do you think that people are just... I'm trying to play this in with kind of what we talk about with Bonhoeffer's costly discipleship. Yep. Do you think people just will move on from a church when it just doesn't work for them? Like because of that transience and consumerism? I think it's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's pretty close. Mm. I think what will happen is you'll get a group of young people growing up in a little church and then as they get older, some of the people have moved on, some people marry, some people leave the church because they're not Christian anymore. And then you can get left with just a few senior teens, young adults, and then those senior teens and young adults go, oh, I might just look for another church around here that has more young adults. Yeah. And I think that might be partly why bigger churches are growing and smaller churches are declining because smaller churches keep losing their young people and bigger churches probably get some of the young people from smaller churches. 
So okay. I think there's a little bit of uh, transfer growth going on there as well. Mm. It's not necessarily mission that's growing bigger mm. churches. I think it's people who are in a small church and wish they had more people their age. So would you say in, that if if someone's in a small church and they're like, oh, I don't like this, they're not willing, almost like, I don't, I don't have to experience this, I don't well, have to go I, through it? I had it expressed to me as, I've grown up in this church, there's no other people my age here, what am I going to do? Am I just going to go to church with my mum and dad yeah. for the rest of my life? Yeah. That's how some people see it. Now, I was in the same position in the 90s. I was at Grand Wranglican and there was almost no young adults left in the church. But I was thinking, of, I think I've shared this story on the podcast, but I was thinking one night of going to Guymere Baptist Church instead of our church. And then I thought, but if I go, then this is going to happen again and again and again. So I just stated, I decided and I said to God that I'd hang out at Glen Wranglickham for the rest of my life unless I got asked to move. And for me, that's kind of my personality. I've got to be all in or whatever. So I'm like, all right, I'm all in. So what am I going to do? So I walked over the other side of the church and I talked to the teenagers who were over there. There was about five or six kids in year 10, I think. And they didn't want to talk to me. And I'm like, How old oh, were you? this isn't not- working very well. Oh, probably 20. Yeah, okay. Yeah, probably 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. Probably 19. And... Uh, yeah, I thought, wow, this is going to be a bit harder than I thought. And I just started going out with a girl, Louise, who ended up marrying me, which is terrific. <laughs> but we decided we'd try and work together on building her youth group up at Cronulla and our youth group up at Guaymere. But I had a different mindset. I thought I was more optimistic. I think I can turn this around under God. I think we can do better than just having all the kids leave Guaymere Anglican as a matter of course. And within mm. probably five years, we had 500 kids mm four or five hundred kids seven years maybe seven or eight years so that's the thing i think that's a shame we can't somehow see that idea amongst young adults all over the place that maybe if you invest into the next generation under you and help create some stability and long-term low-key relationships then maybe churches that are little can grow like going wrangler can did yeah that's interesting is it because i i think that's probably my generation and is it Gen Z after me, isn't it? After Gen, is it Gen yeah, Y? I think like Alphas or something. No, it's Gen Z and then what the Alphas and Millennials and then the Zoomers. Gen and Z, <laughs> I don't know. Zoomers. I think Elijah's Zoomer, he's 19. Okay. And then Alphas. No, what? Are, was Alphas younger than that? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. I well, can't keep up. There's so many different generations. Well, that's the interesting thing too that I think we've talked about too is that the gap between the generations seems to be reducing... Yeah, I think to I, a degree because of I, technology. Yeah, I'm not sure what the generational theory is done with that, but I, I think every five years, I think generations are changing. Hmm. Um, Which well, is you good. think about the okay, 1981 was when your generation started getting born 40 yep. years ago. You get 1981 was the biggest technological advance that year, the Walkman. Okay, so that oh, was. Right. <laughs> That was invented in 1981. Then after that, there was the VHS. After that, there was a DVD player, C- CDs came along. Then the internet came in 1989, I think. And then you've got mobile phones start going nuts. Everyone's getting one of them. And then in 2008, iPhone brings out the first smartphone. Then social media goes nuts. And now in 2020, I think, 2021 maybe, they released G- chat gpt ai so each of those technologies have had a massive impact on the way people live so if you go back to 1981 just before the the walkman 
you'd get in the car with four mates and go down the beach to go for a surf and you'd turn the radio on and listen to whatever was on Triple M and then you'd get out and go for a surf. So everyone was listening to the same songs. Mm. Then after the Walkman, everyone goes and buys Walkmans and you could drive down the beach and I used to do this. I'd drive down the beach with my mates when I was old enough to drive down the beach about five or six years after this invention and we all had our own Walkmans on listening to our own songs. So I'm listening to The Cure. Someone else was listening to Sting. Someone else was listening to In Excess. Someone was listening to, you know, I don't know, R.E.M. And everyone's listening to different stuff. So that changed the way we saw popular music. Once upon a time, everyone listened to the same thing. Everyone tuned into this show called Countdown. We all watched the same top ten, whatever. Everyone knew and liked the same kind of music. Yeah, there were some people like Dabber and some people like ACDC, but pretty much everyone was listening to similar music. But then the choices increase and people get used to those choices increasing. So then you have the internet come along and, of course, that just creates heaps of choice. Now, AI, what's that going to do? Well, already the smartphone has meant that instead of people having Walkmans on, they're all on their phones all the time. So, you know, once upon a time you get on a train and everyone's reading a newspaper maybe, but that's about it. Now everyone's not talking to each other at all. They're on a phone. And AI comes along. What's that going to do? I don't know. So each generation that has these new technologies have different ways of living and different ways of living create different ways of seeing the world and different ways of seeing the world create different values. So if the technology speeds up, then the change of generations is going to speed up Mm. and that makes passing on the gospel to each new generation incredibly difficult because you've got to work out what's your posture towards the culture that is changing. Mm. Do you think that, and also that continual splicing of generations because of the technological change, kind of exposes the kind of problem with the homogeneous unit principle in a sense? Yeah. It's causing that, and it it can't keep up with that. No, it can't. It's perpetually out of date. So my wife Lou worked with a guy who was Irish and she found it oh he said oh what's your husband do and she said oh he's writing a phd on the jesus movement Mm -hmm. and he said oh jesus movement he said yeah i used to be in the in the hippie movement in ireland and lou's like there were hippies in ireland and he's like yeah yeah there were (laughs) and he goes yeah i knew the jesus movement she goes there's jesus movement in ireland and he goes yeah yeah there were jesus people in ireland and he goes they were kind of cool but they were always trying to work out what we were doing and by the time we moved on to the next thing they were already out of date so right Copying culture is meaning that you're continually out of date. So if you're trying to reach each new culture by copying it, then you're never going to reach it. So I think we mentioned Crouch a couple of weeks ago. He's taken some research by a very famous sociologist, Niebuhr, from the 1940s who talked about our engagement with culture and he's brought it into a new kind of way of thinking. And he, Crouch says that, the different stances that you can have towards or what he calls a posture towards culture are either you condemn it, you critique it, which is mean you sit back and talk about it, which we do on this podcast, mm. or you copy it or you just consume it. And mm. the last thing you can do is actually be creative yourself within a changing culture. Which is the cultural goods things that you were talking about yeah, last week. Yeah, the cultural goods things that we were talking about last week. So... Mm. He argues that you need to be continually being creative to, right? as the culture is creative. So that's why we put a lot of emphasis at church on having young people and older people working together so we can create new Christian lifestyles together in the local church. 
And so that's kind of what I think we've chosen to do in the face of culture. But some Christians just stand back and condemn culture. Some just talk about it a lot, but that doesn't doesn't help either. If you don't engage with it as well. Not really. Yeah. I mean, if you know people have a view on some cultural artifact like Hunt for Red, Red October, <laughs> even though it seems old, who cares? You know, it's not going to get people to come to church mm. so but then if you copy culture then which i think is kind of standard fare in our generation like you know the reason that church planning became really popular was people thought oh we could create more expressions of church that are more culturally relevant to young people so let's do that so let's copy the culture in the church and everyone's walking around in skinny tight jeans and wearing beards and drinking lattes and got tattoos and sneakers sneakers yeah and everyone's like wow that's a cool church but <laughs> Was it really cool? Like that culture's probably already moved on even after we worked out how to make a church for hipsters. Mm. It's definitely moved on now. And I'm still seeing pastors that wear skinny black jeans and that's what also happens. You end up having a, a lag, you know. And um, so I think copying doesn't work. The consuming one's worrying because I think a lot of Christians are just giving up on trying to engage with culture and are just consuming the culture like everybody else. And unfortunately a lot of Christians are not very distinctive from their non-Christian neighbours and friends and family. They've got the same lifestyle. Mm. Uh, they just go to church on Sunday as well. So that's not a great option. But to actually create new things means you need to have some kind of view that you're committed to the gospel and you're committed to your local church in such a way that you're willing to let it cost you and that yeah. you're willing to think that the action's in the church, not in the world. So... Going to church is not something I should do. It's something I love doing and I want to do and I, I want to see this as my lifestyle. Mm. So that's harder to get people to engage with. Something that makes me think of that, though, is if you are... I think it is harder, but I, if it's just copying or even consuming, I wonder if that leads to a lack of authenticity that yeah. is perhaps what people are actually find appealing yeah, that yeah. are going to come to church. Yeah, 100%. So there's a writer called Andrew Root that is very popular and very well known he's a youth ministry specialist and he wrote a um a classic uh book called revisiting relational youth ministry in which he looks at the history of youth ministry and he goes back to the time when things had started to change in our culture away from christendom and towards this new postmodern world in the 1950s where people even back then were starting to choose their own relationships as young people there was this idea of the teenager was being born in the 50s. You know, you get um, Elvis was in the 50s and you get all that sort of rock and roll starting up. Uh, so he he looks back then and he sees that Young Life and Youth for Christ were two prominent movements back then. And this guy called Jim Rayburn, who was the first person to popularise an American version of the incarnational approach, mm. his view was that you need to kind of enter into the young people's world and be like them and win the right to be heard by them before you can share the gospel with them. And that became a standard idea that kind of influenced a lot of youth ministry through up till our time, really. So the idea of the hipster church is still not much more sophisticated than that. It's like, well, Jesus became a Jew to the Jews. We're going to be a cool hipster to the hipsters who live around here and you know be a church for them. So instead of expecting them to jump through cultural hoops to go to a baby boomer church, down the road they can come to a young hip church which is kind of the idea of the homogeneous unit principle in the first place so the homogeneous unit principle is kind of incarnational as well but root says 
it's actually a bit manipulative if you just try and be friends with someone and try and have a culture like theirs to get them to become a Christian. And so he argued for a relational, relational youth ministry. So he's arguing for a, a rethink of what it is to be um, incarnational, in, in other words, be in the world where people are living to share the gospel. And interestingly, he's gone full circle and found Bonhoeffer, has Dietrich Bonhoeffer from the 1940s, who was a youth minister in the 20s and 30s. And Bonhoeffer's view was that discipleship shouldn't be about making Christianity easier. It's a, it's about helping people to understand costly grace and costly uh, discipleship so that not making discipleship harder but actually saying it's okay if it costs you because Jesus said pick up your cross and carry it. So actually being with people is really important and being present with them. We've got to be really careful that we're not pitching Christianity as a product that people can consume. Because one of the unfortunate outcomes of the Jim Rayburn view of incarnationalism was that Christianity became a copying culture. Jesus movement's an example. The copied rock and roll. The um, uh, homogeneous unit principles, an example. Even even the Gen X and Gen Y emerging church examples of church is kind of a copying culture. But Bonhoeffer was calling for something that was more. Uh, creative and, and more of a community where Christians together could sit under the word of God together and actually be present with each other and be present with people who aren't Christians and love them. And that's more costly because rather than being easy, it's actually harder to, to do that. And so if you look back in the history of youth ministry, I think that's actually the history of youth ministry up until the Second World War. Most of youth ministry wasn't let's copy culture and make a different product. The first youth ministry, Mark Center says, was the Sunday school in the early 1800s. Mm. Well, they didn't copy industrialised culture. What they did was, led by a guy called Robert Rakes, they saw all these kids that were growing up without the Bible in cities because they'd migrated from these villages and come to the cities and they were living on the street like the Oliver sh- you know, book and TV movie and all that. <laughs> um, and so this Rayburn guy goes, oh, let's teach these kids to, to read the Bible on Sunday mornings in Christian houses and that'll teach them how to... And that went nuts, went all over the world. So that wasn't a copying culture. That was creating a new cultural good that was effective at solving problems that people didn't have solutions to with the worldly goods that they had. So So then the... So instead of copying or consuming, we can be... Actually, that... that, um, that model of costly discipleship can actually help you help us to stand out so that could yeah. possibly be more appealing yeah. to people that yeah. are looking for yeah. something. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. yeah. So so the copying culture of incarnationalism says the modus operandi for mission is you leave the church and you go somewhere else and you meet people in their world and then you make friends with them and then you bring them back to church. Well, the problem is more people got evangelised by the culture they mm. went out into than, um, you know, I remember people saying they didn't want to come. We, we started Soul Revival on a Saturday night because we wanted to be creative culturally and create our own culture. And yet a lot of Christians said, we don't want to come to church on a Saturday night because we're going up the pub to talk to our friends. Because who's going to go and tell them the gospel if we don't? But the problem was that they were being evangelised by the pub as much as they were trying to evangelise their non-Christian friends. And I think statistics have shown that more people have been evangelised by the pubs than have brought people out of the pubs into the church. Because even when they come back to the church, they're often not happy with the expression of it because it doesn't meet what they are looking for 
whatever. But if you actually dig in with a group of people and then ask people to come to a new kind of church that is preaching the Bible and is very relational and spending a bit more time with each other, people can be finding that quite uh, a good thing. Mm. And so actually our mission is driven by our Saturday night and our Sunday morning and all our gatherings. So we're driving our mission in a very counterintuitive way for post-incarnational thinking, which is rather than going out into the world to reach people, we're actually living as a distinctive Christian community, inviting people to come and check it out. And we all have friends. We all live with people. We all work with people. We all play sport. We all do all those things. But this idea of going to the pub for mission is, you know, some people can do it if they want. But, yeah, I've you know been in pubs, talked to people about Jesus. But I think that it's really exciting when you can invite people to church and they actually want to come. Mm. And I think so. I think that's the distinctive we're bringing to yeah. to the scene at the moment. No, no, it makes it makes sense. I was just thinking it relates to there was another bit of research that I was going to throw out there for you uh, in relation to uh, trust mm. in different um, uh, kind of bodies we could call mm. them. Uh, I've got to say that Mark Say has highlighted this on his Instagram account. So it's from McCrindle, which is a Christian research organization, and it's talking about the shift in trust over the last three years. So looking at kind of the tumultuous environment of navigating COVID-19 lockdowns, it says, and looking for nation leaders' guidance. The group that they surveyed says that they've seen a shift in a dwindling trust in the government. Nearly half of the respondents stating they had lost trust in the Australian government during the time. They also said there was a parallel decline in trust. Did you say half? Yeah, or wow. 47%. Nearly wow. half people said they'd lost trust in the government. Wow. I mean, I, I um, assume that that would be different levels of trust but they at some point they it's said we've number, lost some it? of some trust and um, there is also a parallel decline in trust in the mainstream media 47 percent again and large corporations is 43 percent two of the things that are interesting though that trust went up in was small and medium-sized businesses but also uh, trust in religious institutions apparently 21 percent of respondents expressed faith in local churches and 19% in the broader church community in the last three years. So that's an increase from their previous research. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that authenticity, uh, that seeing those cultural goods being made uh, has contributed to that. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's true. I think one of the things that's interesting is that um, another thing that Crouch talks about is that there is cultural change that takes place in different dimensions of human society. Okay. So within the ethnic traditions of Australian society, we've moved from uh, a society that was Aboriginal ethnic tradition. When the British settlers came, they overwhelmed that ethnic tradition with the Anglo-Celtic tradition that sought to assimilate all migrants and Aboriginal cultures into that. And then after the white Australia policy was abolished in 1961, there was a, a shift and then there was Australia became a multi-ethnic society through migration. So you can see cultural change taking place amongst ethnic traditions within a society. That's the first dimension. The second dimension is the institutions of the society. So, you know, the media, the government, you know, the church, they're all institutions of the society. And there's been really big changes in government and corporations and the mass media uh when i was going to university in the 1990s the um 
the sorry the nineteen eighties late nineteen eighties. Um, our lecturers were telling us that the ABC was predominantly a conservative organisation, and when you watch them report on student demonstrations, be aware that they're going to have a right wing bias. Now, interestingly. 40, 30 years later, I'd say the ABC's pendulum has swung to the other direction, that it would be probably more of a progressive media outlet. And so there's changes in, in institutions. You know, the, there was a time where Christianity was solidly part of all our institutions, but now I think it's been disconnected from institutions right across the board. So uh, you're more likely to have a welcome to country in a in an office meeting in a bureaucracy than hear the Lord's Prayer or whatever. So, you know, those changes have taken place. But then the the other dimension, the third dimension of society that he talks about is the minor scales of society. And this is picking up on what you're talking about now. So at the minor scales of societies, the cafes, the corner shops, the small local churches, mm. the football clubs, and people seem to be um, trusting in some of those kind of local expressions more than the bigger meta narratives of the institutions of society kind of thing. Uh, but also I think the church is a member of that local community. So I think that's why it's really important to think about creating cultural goods within the smaller scales of society. So rather than praying that one day... I mean, maybe God might raise up another Billy Graham preacher who comes along and preaches this massive thing across a big picture. Or, but generally, you know, a, a movie star becoming a Christian isn't a blip on the radar for society as a whole. But what makes a difference is Christians living out their daily Christian lives in community at the, the grassroots. minor scales, yeah. grassroots. I think people appreciate that. I right. think they see it and they trust it. Just like people like their corner store because they know the people who run it, they also like to see... Um, Christians who are just living out their lives. So, the you know, the media might portray Christians as hateful and horrible bigots, but when people are in need and they go to their local church for help and they get helped, then they can be really stunned by the contrast of that. So maybe in a time of, I mean, we talk about on the shockers of a cultural bumps in the road, COVID-19 pan- pandemic is a massive one of those. So maybe people were, uh, that changed a lot of things for a lot of people. So maybe they'd, searching for meaning mm. so at the grassroots level they're looking for that and they're seeing mm. people in their community that are Christians and so they're responding to that and their trust has gone up maybe I think so mm. yeah there you go well we can keep thinking about that I suppose because that's where we can maybe make the most impact as Christians like you're saying yeah yeah well again that's what Crouch argues in his book Culture Makers he says that we need to live out our faith at the grassroots level right. and that's why we've uh, we've lent into the theories of Ray Oldenburg with the third place theory because he says that in the small scales of human society, people live in the first place, their homes, second place, the workplace, third place, communities. And I think churches were traditional third places at once upon a time. Mm. I think a lot of people stopped going to church and started going to football clubs and RSLs and cafes and sporting clubs for their community and their friendship. But I think it's really important that we be vital exciting communities of God's people that are listening to the word of God, gathering around the word of God, loving and and building one another up and in the process inviting others to come and, and hear about Jesus and then see how we live that it's different. And I think that big part of come see how we live is 
vibing off that Bonhoeffer idea in his book Life Together, which he says the Christian community should be distinct and different to other communities. So I think that's an exciting challenge for us all that our churches, if we can, if we can continue to really remember that the church is what Jesus has called us to be a part of, it's his, it's his vision, then how about we partner with him in his vision instead of trying to add to that different ancillary things that might be great to um, theorise about. But at the end of the day, let's just make church great. That's all I reckon. Mm. That's a perfect way to finish. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much for you know engaging with two pieces of research. We've done an hour-long <laughs> podcast, so that's, that's Thanks, really Joel. cool. Thank great. you very much. Uh, if you have any questions around it, uh, come and email me at joel at shockersorbit.com.au or chuck a, ch- a comment on our YouTube channel. And um, as always, thank you again, Stu. Really appreciate it. Thank you to everyone listening and watching, and we'll finish with a one way. One way. One way. One way.